This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I have not been unmindful of the sentiments expressed by you in the conversations just alluded to. On the contrary, I have again and again revolved them with thoughtful anxiety. But without being able to dispose my mind to a longer continuation in the office I have nailed the honor to hold. I therefore still look forward to the fulfillment of my fondest and most ardent wishes to spend the remainder of my days, which I cannot expect will be many, in ease and tranquility. Nothing short of conviction that my dear election of the chair of government, if it should be the desire of the people to continue me in it, would involve the country in serious disputes respecting the chief magistrate and the disagreeable consequences which might result therefrom in the floating and divided opinions which seem to prevail at present could, in any wise, induce me to relinquish the determination I have formed. And of this, I do not see how any evidence can be obtained previous to the election. My vanity, I am sure, is not of that cast as to allow me to view the subject in this light. One can only imagine James Madison's face when he received this letter from President Washington in May 1792. While not coming as a complete surprise, this seemed to be the only candidate anyone had talked about for president, shutting the door firmly on a second term, with the presidential election only a few months away. What would happen if George Washington went back to Mount Vernon next March was anyone's guess. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. As always, I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we get into the midst of the election of 1792, we need to back up a little bit in order to understand Washington's reluctance to serve as president for another term. The past few months had not been pleasant ones for Washington or the officers in his cabinet. As already discussed in episodes 1.7 and 1.11, the end of 1791 had brought the news of St. Clair's defeat which led to the first, but, as we well know, not the last, congressional investigation, the first invocation of executive privilege, and the rebuilding of the U.S. Army under the command of General Anthony Wayne. Meanwhile, as noted in episode 1.9, thanks to the maneuverings of Madison and Secretary of State Jefferson, Philip Furneaux's National Gazette had launched its first issue at the end of October to act as an anti-Hamiltonian mouthpiece, denouncing the Treasury Secretary, quote, as dishonest, corrupt and the veritable head of a monarchist conspiracy, while Jefferson was praised in its pages as the, quote, colossus of liberty. This did nothing to heal the growing rift between the two cabinet secretaries, and other events at home and abroad would pull them even further apart. The French had adopted a new constitution after King Louis had given his assent, and the new legislative assembly began meeting on October 1st, 1791, Anyone who thought that affairs in France would settle down after the assembly convened was sorely mistaken. Before the month was out, Jacques-Pierre Brissot, one of the leading figures in the assembly, would begin agitating to strip the leaders of the émigrés, aristocrats who had fled France at the onset of the revolution, of their property, and to attack nations harboring them. When King Louis began to resist these efforts, 
Brissot and his supporters began rumbling anew about rumors that Louis was in league with the emigres and foreign powers, most notably Austria, the home of the despised Queen Marie Antoinette. To destroy the work of the revolutionaries and return France back to the despotism that had existed prior to the fall of the Bastille. Hadn't they caught the king and queen trying to escape to the border back in June? Did all this mean that the king was a traitor to France? The rumbles grew louder, and chill Louis capitulated, as he had so many times in the last couple of years, and came out on December 14th in support of using military force against powers harboring emigres with designs hostile to the revolution. It may have been by a thread, but Louis was hanging on to his throne, while war threatened to consume Europe once more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Domestically, Hamilton's continued push for his economic vision for the United States led to ever more political agitation. On July 4, 1791, shares of the new Bank of the United States went on sale, and an hour later, the shares were sold out. For those who were unable to buy a share outright, the Treasury Department allowed small investors to make $25 down payments in exchange for a certificate called a scrip, which served as a guarantee to a share once installment payments towards the full share were completed. As there was a limited supply and full shares were more expensive to buy, investors scrambled to get their hands on scrip, and the price of scrip soared. Washington saw this as, quote, an unexampled proof of the resources of our countrymen and their confidence in public measures. Others in the government, however, did not see this scripomania, as it was dubbed, in quite the same positive light. Jefferson wrote to Edmund Pendleton around the same time that, quote, You will have seen the rapidity with which the subscriptions to the bank were filled. As yet, the delirium of speculation is too strong to admit sober reflection. It remains to be seen whether in a country whose capital is too small to carry on its own commerce, to establish manufactures, erect buildings, etc., such sums should have been withdrawn from those useful pursuits to be employed in gambling. I'm afraid it is the intention to nourish the spirit of gambling by throwing in from time to time new ailment. What Washington and Hamilton called investing, Jefferson and Madison called gambling. Part of the reason for the Virginians' lack of confidence in this financial system was the composition of the investors. As Ron Chernow noted, quote, The troubling preponderance of Northeast investors combined with other factors, to feed the impression of a northern oligarchy assiduously at work. Most subscribers were merchants and lawyers, part of Hamilton's political following, and some of the most visible speculators, especially William Dewar, belonged to his entourage. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, who is William Dewar? Should that name ring a bell? I went back to verify and no, we haven't discussed William Dewar yet. But as he's going to be representative of the fears that the pro-Jefferson crowd would have about Hamilton and his financial system, and would be cited as reflective of the corruption that financial schemes ultimately brought about, let's take a moment to get to know Mr. Dewar. William Dewar grew up in England and had studied classics at Eden Borden School. After the death of his father while he was in his teens, Dewar would travel to Bengal, where he would work for the East India Company, before traveling to the West Indies to spend some time on a plantation that his family owned in Antigua. 
Dewar would decide in 1768 to invest in the British colony of New York, where he bought land near Saratoga, not far from the Schuyler family's property, and he would make his living selling lumber to the British Navy before permanently settling in the colony in 1773. At some point while Hamilton was still studying at King's College, he would make Dewar's acquaintance, and the two men became friends. As both got wrapped up in the Revolution, they would find their work on behalf of the new United States drawing them ever closer, with Dewar, like Hamilton, serving in the Continental Congress and participating in the convention to draft the New York State Constitution, as well as becoming involved in the New York Manumission Society. Had I thought of it back when I was writing episode 1.25, the Hamilton mini-episode, I would have laid the groundwork for some of this by mentioning that Hamilton thought so well of Dewar as to invite him to be the fourth writer of the Federalist Essays. Ultimately, Hamilton rejected the two essays that Dewar submitted, so hopefully you'll forgive me for overlooking Dewar in that episode. He would not be overlooked by his friend Hamilton, however. Dewar was finishing up his third year serving as Secretary to the Board of Treasury inherited by the Washington administration from the Confederation government when Hamilton was named as Secretary of the Treasury and asked his friend to stay on as Assistant Secretary of the Treasury. Dewar would ultimately agree, but Hamilton would have reason to regret that decision, as Dewar would be described by a later Hamilton biographer as, quote, the most notorious friend in Hamilton's life. One historian writing on Dewar suggested that he took the position in the Treasury Department, quote, with the understanding that he need not drop his private affairs, which is not outside of the realm of possibility, considering what we already discussed in episode 1.4 about Washington's first cabinet and what we would now call conflicts of interest being expectations without question. Dewar did not last long in the role, resigning in April 1790 and being replaced a month later by someone who we did mention in episode 1.6. Tench Cox. That short tenure and their close association, as well as Dewar's connections with other administration officials, would ultimately be used against Hamilton. However, we'll get to that. The script was issued, the price went up, and up, and up, rising to $300 by August 11th, and then it came crashing down. The problem was, the rise and fall wasn't just restricted to the new bank script. Investors had realized that Hamilton's bank program was related with his plan to service the federal debt, and they saw that there were multiple options for them to make money through the deal. Thus, while they were buying up Scrip, investors were also buying up government bonds, causing the price of those to rise as well through July, but then fall along with the price of Scrip in August. Hamilton, realizing the potential crisis on his hands, immediately sprang into action, utilizing all the tools at his disposal. First, he called a meeting of the commissioners of the sinking fund, a portion of his public debt proposal back in January 1790 that had received little attention at the time, but was meant as a safeguard, quote, to allow liquidity injections through open market purchases of government securities in the event of a financial crisis. The commission was made up of some of the leading figures of the new government. But as Vice President Adams and Chief Justice John Jay were out of Philadelphia at the time, Hamilton met with the other commissioners, Secretary of State Jefferson, and Attorney General Edmund Randolph, and was duly authorized to make open market purchases of government securities with the aim of stabilizing the market. It worked, in some ways, all too well. Though Hamilton wanted to make it known that it was not a guarantee of government intervention to bail out speculators any time financial speculation got too wild, it seems as if it was perceived as such. And thus, surprise, surprise, another speculative bubble went up this time organized by Hamilton's friend, William Dewar. But it wouldn't be until 1792 before this bubble would burst. 
In the meantime, Hamilton had unleashed another part of his financial plan with his report on manufacturers, sent to Congress in December 1791. Congress had actually requested this report back in January 1790, but Hamilton took nearly two years to get it to them. Some historians have speculated that Hamilton was not fully invested in the report or its proposals, thus accounting for the delay. But considering the efforts that he put in to getting its provisions enacted, historian Douglas A. Irwin makes a strong argument that Hamilton was committed to his proposals in the report, but was systematic in the implementation of the proposals he put forward on behalf of the administration. Indeed, in an article by Silla, Wright, and Cohen examining Hamilton's response to the impending financial bubble in 1792, they note, quote, a growing number of business corporations, financial and non-financial, as one of the, quote, six critical institutional components that characterize modern financial systems, that they attribute it to being key to the administration's overall vision and to be a result of Hamilton's efforts as Secretary of the Treasury. Hamilton's proposal with this report was, without getting into specifics, quote, a broad-ranging and powerful case for the government promotion of manufacturing. As Irwin notes, quote, most of the specific proposals in the report consisted of slight increase or decreases in existing tariffs, except for five key industries. But the problem that Jefferson and Madison would have with this report was not necessarily the specific proposals of this report, but rather the implications it could have for the future. As noted by Madison in a letter to a correspondent shortly after the report was sent to Congress, he felt that, as the report, quote, broaches a new constitutional doctrine of vast consequence and demanding the serious attention of the public. I consider it myself as subverting the fundamental and characteristic principle of the government. If Congress can do whatever in their discretion can be done by money and will promote the general welfare, the government is no longer a limited one possessing enumerated powers, but an indefinite one to particular exceptions. Jefferson would echo these concerns in a meeting with Washington in February 1792, but within five months of the report being sent, quote, Congress enacted virtually every tariff recommendation in the report, and this report would set the tone for, quote, activist government policies to promote industrialization for decades and centuries to come. Despite Jefferson's protestations, it should be noted that not only did Washington endorse the proposals, but he had encouraged them prior to Hamilton submitting his report. He wrote to Hamilton in October 1791 that, quote, The advantages which would result to this country from the produce of articles which ought to be manufactured at home is apparent, and without a bounty, what's now called a subsidy, I know of no means by which the growth of those industries can be effectually encouraged. This likely wasn't the first time, nor will it be the last time, that we'll see Jefferson meet with Washington to argue against a point which he attributed to Hamilton, but which, in fact, was a key component of Washington's own vision for America. Meanwhile, back in New York, the former assistant treasury secretary and his associates were only set on promoting themselves and their wealth, beginning in January 1792. In one week that month, three new banks were proposed in New York City, but we're only going to focus on one of these, the Million Bank. This bank was promoted by Dewar along with several of his close associates and business partners, and the money used to raise funds was not only borrowed locally on existing credit, but these men, both directly and indirectly, established new lines of credit and borrowed funds from the recently opened Bank of the United States. Hamilton, as soon as he heard about this scheme, wrote to William Seaton of the Bank of New York that, quote, 
The million banks' effects cannot but be in every view pernicious. These extravagant sallies of speculation do injury to the government and to the whole system of public credit by disgusting all sober citizens and giving a wild air to everything. What was the end game for the creation of the Million Bank? Well, it was a twofold scheme. As Hamilton likely saw, and hence his letter to Seton, with the Million Bank being the next big thing backed by prominent merchants in New York, folks would be eager to buy shares of it. When over 20,000 shares were made available for subscription in mid-January, it earned the investors of the bank 10 times the contemplated capital. Thus, they were making money from the Million Bank, even more so when an agreement was reached for the other two proposed banks to be consolidated with the Million Bank. However, how would people get money to purchase securities in the Million Bank if they didn't have the cash on hand? Well, they could go with local lines of credit, or they could sell their stock in the older Bank of New York, which would have the effect of driving the cost of that stock down. However, Dewar and his friends did hit a snag in their plan, as their promotion worked a bit too well, and the consortium was not able to gain a controlling interest in the Million Bank. Thus, they shifted gears a bit and aimed to get control of the Bank of New York, then move on to corner the market on U.S. Treasury securities. As another part of their scheme, they deposited large amounts of Bank of the United States notes in the Bank of New York, with the deposits then being drawn down by the schemers as specie, thus depleting their reserves and making the situation even more precarious for the Bank of New York. The bank, when it realized what was happening, stopped taking deposits in Bank of the U.S. notes, which, quote, raised a great clamor for the bank and likewise posed a threat for their operations. But the bank was between a rock and a hard place. The scheme might have worked if Hamilton hadn't stepped in. He remained in consultation with William Seaton and on January 24th asked him to continue to accept deposits from the Treasury and Bank of the U.S. notes with his guarantee that he was giving directions to the Treasurer to not draw on the Bank of New York without Hamilton's permission. He assured Seaton that, quote, My intention is to leave you in possession of all the money you have or may receive till I am assured that the present storm is effectually weathered. He urged the New York banker to, quote, be confidential with me. If you are pressed, whatever support may be in my power shall be afforded. Hamilton would not let the Bank of New York fall. In the meantime, a new bubble started to form in the price of public securities, and trouble was starting to brew at the Bank of the United States due to its having overextended its credit, resulting in declining specie reserves. Hamilton had to play a balancing act between the two banks, and thus informed Seaton on February 10th that he was drawing down $100,000 from the Bank of New York to build back the reserves in the Bank of the United States, but that he, quote, will ensure its restoration to you in specie. He also warned that, quote, every existing bank ought within prudent limits to abridge its operations. The superstructure of credit is now too vast for the foundation. It must be gradually brought within more reasonable dimensions, or it will tumble. The key word here was prudent, but when the banks started putting on the brakes with lending, this hit those investors like Dewar, who were in over their head in debt, hard. The Bank of the United States alone called in over 25% of its loans, which were valued at over $625,000. Dewar and his consortium, meanwhile, had taxed their credit to the limit to come up with money to purchase bank stocks and government securities. And now that the banks were both calling in their loans and declining to lend to anyone without solid collateral to offer security, 
a condition that Hamilton urged Seaton to adopt on March 19th in order to get the Bank of New York to contract, but not completely stop lending. Not only did Dewar and his friends have no money on hand, but they had no means to acquire any to pay their debts in time. When Dewar on March 9th stopped paying his debts and began to seek protection from his creditors, it quickly became clear to everyone in New York just how much in debt he was, as nearly everyone in New York began to complain about Dewar owing them repayment. Seriously, according to Dewar's contemporary Benjamin Rush, the former Treasury officials' creditors included, quote, merchants, tradesmen, daymen, widows, orphans, oystermen, market women, churches, and even common prostitutes, along with, of course, the banks and stockbrokers. Not only did Dewar himself go down in financial ruin, but he took a number of the people of New York City down along with him, as it was not likely many of them would ever get repaid. Dewar wrote a letter to his old friend Hamilton on the 12th, fessing up and asking Hamilton to intervene, to put a hold on the Treasury Department bringing suit against him, until he could arrive in Philadelphia to sort things out assuring Hamilton that, quote, My public transactions are not blended with my private affairs. Every farthing will be immediately accounted for. Of this I pledge my honor. Whether because he felt Dewar's honor to be worthless at this point, or because he didn't dare get dragged down into the mire, or because he genuinely did not get the letter in time, Hamilton wrote back on the 14th that, quote, It was too late to have any influence in the affair. Comptroller of the Treasury Oliver Walcott, Jr., had already written to the U.S. District Attorney in New York on the same day that Dewar was writing to Hamilton, ordering the District Attorney to bring suit against Dewar if he could not immediately repay the $200,000 he owed to the U.S. government due to funds that were unaccounted for from his tenure as Secretary of the Board of the Treasury under the Confederation government. Hamilton advised his friend to, quote, Act with fortitude and honor. If you cannot reasonably hope for a favorable extrication, do not plunge deeper. There was nowhere else for Dewar to plunge except for prison, which is where he ended up on March 23rd. Hamilton had little time to worry over Dewar, as he worked to prevent the entire financial system from collapsing. In addition to his efforts to keep the credit system humming along, though not at as frenetic of a pace as it had been, Hamilton also gave authorization for open market purchases of U.S. securities to begin anew only going to the sinking fund commissioners the day after giving the order to request authorization to do so, as well as to utilize additional funds to make more purchases to shore up the market. Unlike the year prior, this time authorization was not immediately given, as Jefferson and Attorney General Randolph asked for any decision to be delayed until the arrival of Chief Justice Jay, who was expected to return from New York shortly. Finally, on March 26th, despite the fact that Jay had still not returned to Philadelphia, Hamilton was able to convince a majority of the commissioners to agree to an additional $100,000 purchase of open market securities. Meanwhile, he had managed to convince the Bank of New York to continue lending to those with good collateral to offer, such as U.S. government bonds, but at a higher rate than normal, with Hamilton promising to take off their hands at least half of any collateral that the bank ended up stuck with. Interestingly enough, the strategies that Hamilton devised to deal with this financial crisis are noted by Silla, Wright, and Cohen in their paper about the Panic of 1792 as not appearing again for another eight decades when they were reinvented, seemingly independent of Hamilton's work, by famed British essayist and economic commentator Walter Badgett. In any case, the cure worked. By April 16th, 
Hamilton was writing to William Short, the nation's fiscal agent in Europe, with details of the financial scare and asserting that, quote, the specie is returning from the country and the heaviest private engagements having now fallen due, the declension of stock may be considered as arrested. This did not mean that the crisis was completely over, though. Though the economic one may be resolved, the political storm was just getting fired up. Before we get to that, as a coda to the Panic of 1792, just over a month after Hamilton wrote short, a group of stockbrokers got together outside of 68 Wall Street, underneath a buttonwood tree, to discuss the recent market fluctuations. After such an uncertain time, they were looking for ways to improve the way they did business, and thus they signed the following agreement, quote, We, the subscribers, brokers for the purchase and sale of the public stock, do hereby solemnly promise and pledge ourselves to each other that we will not buy or sell from this day for any person whatsoever any kind of public stock at a less rate than one quarter percent commission on the specie value, and that we will give preference to each other in our negotiations. In testimony whereof we have set our hands the 17th day of May at New York, 1792. This Buddenwood Agreement, as it came to be known to history, would prove to be the building block for what would ultimately become the New York Stock Exchange. But that's well on down the line. For now, there were political ramifications to consider in the aftermath of the panic. Silla, Wright, and Cohen attribute Jefferson's urging a delay in action in the Sinking Fund Commission's deliberations to being, quote, likely because he wanted to injure Hamilton and the political party and financial revolution he led. Before taking this as a reckless gambling with the overall financial health of the nation for political gain, one must think of who Jefferson thought that this would affect. Remember, as previously stated, Jefferson and Madison with some justification, saw this financial gambling as being undertaken by and large by northern urbanite money men, the kind who they felt would, if left unchallenged, reverse the gains of the revolution and return America to either an oligarchical or possibly even monarchical rule. Jefferson saw the scene as he described to his son-in-law, Thomas Mann Randolph, as follows, quote, Here in Philadelphia, the unmoneyed farmer, as he is termed, his cattle and crops are no more thought of than if they did not feed us. Scrip and stock are food and raiment here. Dewar, the king of the alley, is under a sort of check. The stock sellers say he will rise again. The stock buyers count him out. And the credit and fate of the nation seems to hang on the desperate throes and plunges of gambling scoundrels. Jefferson saw this as a fight for the fate of the nation and that the gambling scoundrels were winning out in the government, rallying around Hamilton as their leader. Indeed, as noted by Ron Chernow, quote, With Jefferson and Madison poised to spot British-style corruption in the legislature, it did not help Hamilton's cause that at least 30 members of Congress and Secretary of War Knox subscribed to bank script. Jefferson Believing that Washington was getting set to retire at the end of his term, had likewise been planning beginning in January 1792 for his own impending retirement from public life and a return to his home, Monticello. The financial panic, though, seemed to re-energize both him and Madison, and the party wheels began to turn ever harder. Beginning in mid-March, a series of six essays using the pseudonym Brutus began appearing in the National Gazette, attacking Hamilton's financial scheme, with one of the last ones being written by Madison and asking the question, who are the real friends of the Union? 
it can be easily concluded that Madison did not include Hamilton or any of his ilk. Rather, he answered that the real friends of the Union were those in the, quote, opposition to a spirit of usurpation and monarchy. The spirit of party was growing ever stronger in the United States in 1792, and an election was just around the corner. Before we get into the midst of the election, we should acknowledge that financial crises were not the only thoughts on Hamilton's mind as 1791 gave way to 1792. You may recall me mentioning in episode 1.9 Hamilton's dalliance with a married woman named Maria Reynolds. Side note, by the way, isn't it nice how so many loose threads that we've been weaving are coming back together in this episode? I swear, there's a method to my madness. Anyway, Maria Reynolds. His affair with Maria had continued through the summer and into the fall of 1791. Even his wife's return to Philadelphia didn't stop him from popping over to Maria's place. What would bring their affair to a grinding halt, though, was the return to Philadelphia of Mr. Reynolds. As Hamilton would later recall, quote, It was a matter of doubt to me whether there had been really a discovery by accident or whether the time for the catastrophe of the plot was arrived. A few days after Hamilton had submitted his report on manufacturers to Congress, he received a note from James Reynolds, revealing his knowledge of the affair and asserting that, quote, you have deprived me of everything that's near and dear to me, and that, quote, now I am determined to have satisfaction. The satisfaction Mr. Reynolds sought, however, was not on a dueling ground. Rather, it was financial. As noted by Chernow, quote, Hamilton asked Reynolds to name his price and the figure he came back with was $1,000, which Hamilton paid in two installments on December 22nd and January 3rd. Naturally, that was the end of the affair with Maria, right? Right? Aha! But that's where you're wrong, dear listener. On January 17th, 1792, James Reynolds wrote to Hamilton asking him to come by the house and to consider his wife a, quote, friend. Yes, you're hearing that right. As Hamilton recalled later, quote, If I recollect rightly, I did not immediately accept the invitation, not till after I had received several very importunate letters from Mrs. Reynolds. Yes, dear friends, he went back to Maria Reynolds and would pay more money to her husband. As you're picking your jaw up from the ground, let's move on to the election of 1792. The election was inevitable, but numerous circumstances had changed in the intervening years. First, only 10 states had cast ballots in 1789. Now the way was clear for New York, North Carolina, and Rhode Island to participate, as well as the two new states of Vermont and Kentucky. Second, Washington had grown older. 1792 found the general turning 60, and he had suffered numerous health scares in his first term. Judging from his detailed letters back to his managers on the ground, his mind was increasingly turned to Mount Vernon. His nephew, George Augustine Washington, who the general had designated while he was away as the general manager of operations, had fallen ill. And Washington felt that, without a trusted hand in charge, his business fortunes could decline significantly. He'd carried the nation this far. Perhaps now, Washington could finally retire and rest at Mount Vernon. Thus, Washington called in James Madison in May 1792 to get his thoughts on, quote, the mode and time to announce to the nation that he would not seek another term, and to ask Madison to write a, quote, valedictory address for Washington to present to the nation. Though Madison did draft a few paragraphs for the president, he strongly urged Washington to remain in office, joining his voice to the chorus of Hamilton, Jefferson, Knox, and Randolph. At a time when Hamilton and Jefferson could hardly agree on what color the sky was, both men begged Washington to stay. 
Jefferson asserted that, quote, North and South will hang together if they have you to hang on. Meanwhile, Hamilton assured Washington that, quote, I trust that it, his sacrifice to serve longer, need not continue above a year or two more, and I think it will be more acceptable to retire from office before the expiration of the term of an election than to decline a re-election. Edmund Randolph wasn't even afraid to use the dread words that were likely on Washington's mind of what might happen upon his leaving office when Randolph declared that, quote, should a civil war arise, you cannot stay at home. And how much easier will it be to disperse the factions which are rushing to this catastrophe than to subdue them after they shall appear in arms? It is the fixed opinion of the world that you surrender nothing incomplete. One can imagine Washington in his study at Mount Vernon muttering some four-letter words under his breath while reading some of these letters. He had waffled a bit in 1788 as to whether or not he really wanted to be president. But as of 1792, it's pretty obvious that he really did not want to be president anymore. He spent a good bit of time at Mount Vernon that year, deliberating whether or not to stand for re-election. And during the fall, he was sending detailed instructions to his managers at the plantation, quote, on where to plant trees, which varieties he preferred, where to place ivy around an ice house, how to care for sick slaves, the manner in which his staff was to spread gravel on the garden walkways, and much more. In October of that year, quote, Washington gave one of his managers a detailed design and a list of material needed to build a two-story, 16-sided circular barn on his Doe Run farm. Ever meticulous, he determined that the foundation and the first floor walls of the barn would need 30,820 bricks. His mind was on Mount Vernon, but his nation was in need. The main reason that both Hamilton and Jefferson wanted Washington to run for president again was that they knew that, if he were not president, the office would be filled by a partisan from one of their two factions, perhaps even Jefferson or Hamilton himself. As much as both ambitious men might covet the office, their fear of the other being in power outweighed their desire, and the concern expressed by so many of his closest advisors finally convinced Washington to stand for re-election. There was no doubt of Washington's re-election, but the question did come up as to whether Adams should be retained as vice president. Jefferson was the obvious choice as the opposition candidate, but he would not allow himself to be presented for the post due to his friendship with Adams. Thus, the Jeffersonian supporters looked around for options. Aaron Burr was discussed at some point. James Monroe was approached about the possibility. Last-ditch efforts were made to get either Jefferson or Madison to agree to stand for the vice presidency. Finally, a caucus was held in Philadelphia on October 16th that decided on New York Governor George Clinton. No, not the P-Funk George Clinton. This is the less funky George Clinton. This effort was not to bear fruit, however. Adams was re-elected with 77 electoral votes, a larger percentage of the vote than in his first election which was only a small consolation to the man from Massachusetts in the midst of the increasing factional rancor in the public arena. Despite his not having put his name forth, Jefferson did earn his first electoral votes with four electors choosing him over Clinton. One elector even opted for Burr over Clinton. Overall, as with the 1788-1789 election, it was rather anticlimactic. Everyone basically knew Washington was a shoe-in, and it was likely that Adams would go back in as well. However, one commentator on this election, Marcus Cunliffe, marks the 1792 election as a prelude to the tone of elections to come. While the party elements were beginning to develop, 
and used the vice presidential contest as a proxy battleground. Cunliffe asserts that, quote, the elements that were to make the capture of the presidency a central aim of party politics were already in being, but not as yet brought together. What was coming together, though, was a storm in Europe that would ultimately spill over and feed into the growing factional rift in American politics. Before Washington could even begin his second term, the head of French King Louis XVI would roll in Paris, and the world would never be the same again. For now, though, we must draw this episode to a close. A special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook, who, as I have learned in the midst of preparing this episode, is more of a fan of Hamilton the Musical than he is of Hamilton the Man, which I would say is a fair assessment, probably shared by others out there. If you could use Andrew's audio editing talents on your next project, or if you'd just like to discuss his views on Hamilton, he can be reached via email at andrew at foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. As for me, if you have any questions, comments, or want to share your thoughts on Dewar, Hamilton, Jefferson, or any other of the motley characters we touched upon in this episode, feel free to reach out to me at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Just to remind everyone as we're getting into the second term, I'm planning on doing a Q&A episode at the end of the series on Washington's presidency, so be sure to get your questions in. Anything that I haven't discussed previously or that you'd like some more information on, I'll be glad to answer and share with everyone. Also, if you haven't completed the survey, be sure to do so by July 31st. There's potentially a $15 gift card to buy books in it for you. Completing the survey and leaving your name and email address will enter you into the drawing for a $15 gift card to Powell's Books, the largest independent book retailer in the U.S. So find the link on the podcast social media and send it in ASAP. Source notes and past episodes are available at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B, rry.com and the podcast is on itunes and stitcher if you'd like to catch up on past episodes and if you're not listening from there already thank you so much for listening and take care dear friends until next time this is peter and this is tom we want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago. Sometimes school just does not allow us to elaborate on the topics that we find interesting, like the real shark attacks that inspired the movie Jaws, or the real historical context to Indiana Jones artifacts. Where does cereal come from? Or are zombies real? Does Ben Franklin really deserve to be on a $100 bill? On our podcast, just like in our class, there are no stupid questions. Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking Podcast from Evergreen Network, anywhere you get your podcasts.